called the Great Deception, and the main theme behind this series is that uh, there are deceptive ideas from the devil, and they play into our disordered desires, which is our flesh, and then they become normalized in sinful society or the world. The first three weeks, we focused on uh, some of Jesus' teaching around the devil, and the main thing was this, the devil is real. His goal is destruction and death, and his main strategy is lies and deception. Uh, And then last week, Matthew began our section in dealing with the flesh, and he talked about the flesh being the desires and cravings of our body that set us apart from God. They they are, are what are separate from God, and sinful passions and corrupt desires, and that these disordered desires of the flesh can lead us to sin if we don't invite the Holy Spirit into our life to take a look at those disordered ideas. And the crazy thing is that there are really good ideas or really good things that can get out of whack. For example, like relationships. Chris just talked about how important fellowship is in relationships, but relationships, if they become more important than my relationship with God... It's a disordered desire. Possessions. um, Family even. The list can go on. And one of the deceptive lies of Satan is that his way is better than God's way. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was strolling through Facebook. This is before we started the Connected 3D campaign. Maybe not, I don't remember. <laughs> but I was scrolling through Facebook and I stumbled across a post by one of my former youth group kids named Mark Benson. And he was talking about a time he spoke this last year. And Jordan, if you want to throw that slide up there, I got that picture. There, it, he's on a massive stage and he is at the Consumer Electronics Show. And he's speaking on behalf of Samsung, and this is in Las Vegas. And the Consumer Electronics Show is the most influential tech show in the United States. And as Mark put in his post, the, varies, the attendance varies, but at times it can reach over 170,000 people. Now, you have to understand that when I first met Mark, he was a, a, a young, young teenager, skinny little kid, kind of kept into the background, quiet, um, didn't say a lot, but he was really good at tennis, and so he spoke with his tennis racket, and you play trombone too, right? Yeah, Yeah. it's kind of a family thing. His dad plays trombone, he did his brother, and that kind of stuff. So uh, when I'm seeing Mark on this stage and and looking at this post, I'm going, wow, this is great. Well, there's more to Mark, and that is he's also, you can move on to the next picture, he's also uh, a family man. This is family from a couple years ago. His his family's all here, so they uh, look a little old. I stole this off of Facebook, so I was on Facebook again during our Connected 3D campaign. Uh, But that's his wife, Mandy, and kids, Niles, Sawyer, and Tali. And um, so Mark is a husband, he's a father, and he's a man of God, Um, and His story fits right in what we have been talking about during the last few weeks about this deceptive 
the great deception. So I asked Mark if he'd come and share his story. And so, uh, Mark, come on up. Let me pray for you. And uh, thanks for coming and no longer being an introvert. <laughs> right? <laughs> thank you. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for Mark. Thank you for the work that you have been doing and are doing in his life. We give you glory in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brad. You bet. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to be here with you today. Did any of you get asked as a child what you wanted to be when you grew up? Anyone get asked that question? It's, um, I don't know how it turned out for you. I'm curious if anybody correctly, you know, was able to predict what you actually would be when you grew up. Did anyone accurately predict what they would be when they grew up? I see one hand. Was it wildly inaccurate for anyone? It's a common question. This is one that's used for kids to get them to think about the things that they love and to imagine what their life might be like in the future. When I was 10, I was asked that question by my teacher, and I said, of all the things that I wanted to be when I grew up, it was a baseball player. I, I dreamed of playing the game that I loved. I dreamed of one day making a game-winning play in the World Series, and I practiced these scenarios constantly in our backyard as I would narrate the play-by-play. But I was also asked by my teacher what I did not want to be when I grew up. And I said, most definitely, I did not want to be an engineer. Engineering seemed nerdy. It seemed irrelevant. It, it didn't really... It was very boring. No offense to anyone who's engineers out there. <laughs> but after filling out a worksheet with my answers, the teacher then took our class down to the basement to the computer lab, and this was brand new in 1989 that we had a computer lab, and sat us in front of a computer. And this program was designed to ask us questions about what we'd like to be when we grew up. And it was, in a way, um, sort of a way to sort of cross-check the answers that we had filled out on the worksheet earlier, but just to let a computer try to figure out what those answers should be. But the computer program asked me three questions. And the first one was, would I like working alone or with people? Well, even by the age of 10, I liked people, but I knew that when I had a chance to work on a project for an extensive period of time where I could really think, I could get into the details, I could work with my hands, that that was when I really felt the most alive. So I said, I like the idea of working alone. And the second question that program asked me was, did I want to dress up or wear more casual clothes? <laughs> and, and I hadn't really thought about that you know, much before. As a 10-year-old, I just wore whatever clothes that I had. But my dad was my hero, and he dressed up every day with nice dress shoes and dress pants when he would go to people's homes to tune their pianos. And I liked the thought of that, so I said I'd like to dress up. And then the third question that was asked was, would you like to make a lot of money or a little bit of money? <laughs> that seemed like an oddly specific question, and I didn't really care about money when I was 10, 
I hadn't given it much thought in my life, and it didn't really seem relevant to the decision about who I would become. But I figured that, well, given the choice between those two options, <laughs> more money seemed better than less. But after entering my questions into the computer, and I pushed enter, and it, I sat waiting for what felt like an eternity, then the computer came up with a message that said, your destiny is to be an undertaker. <laughs> and who knew that three simple questions could accurately predict the entire trajectory of my life? I didn't even know what an undertaker was, other than a, a menacing wrestling figure in the WWF. But fast forward to my adult life, it turns out that being a professional baseball player didn't turn out. And I didn't end up doing anything related to mortuary science. But instead, I found myself working in the very field as a professional that as a child, I was so confident that I would never become an engineer. We don't always know what God has in store for us, do we? The questions my teacher in that computer program asked me, although they were overly simple, they they did help me think about what my future might be like, and it got, me, got my mind thinking about that. But there were many questions that no one asked me. What do you think your biggest insecurity might be? What do you think will become your most significant obstacle to personal growth and development? Or what do you think your biggest fear might be? Now, these, are, these would be pretty dark questions to ask a child. But as I've grown up, I've gone through school, I've made career decisions, I've started a family, I've chosen friends, made decisions about how to, how to spend my time, and tried to follow Jesus. I've learned that these tough questions and these realities have been very much a part of my journey of becoming who I was made to be. And little did I know that as a kid, that for most of my life, I would spend a significant amount of time dealing with a profound fear in my life, which is what I'm doing right now, which is public speaking and hearing the sound of my voice. And I want to tell you about that story, this journey that I'm on, that I'm still on, and the growth that I've seen in my life, thanks to the Lord and for people around me who have been reminding me of the truth but before that, I want to get to just a bit about me. Brad gave you a little bit of an introduction, but I grew up in a small town in west central Minnesota called Kirkoven. It's 750 people. Most people haven't, haven't heard of it, but many of our, our family friends were farmers. But my mom is an artist, and my dad is, as I mentioned, is a, a piano tuner. He's a musician. He directs choirs, orchestras, and musicals. I went to high school in Wilmer, and that was when Brad was my high school youth pastor. And he and Terry had a big impact on my life, as well as my brother and sister. And I remember countless Wednesday evenings studying the Bible in Brad and Terry's living room. I ended up studying math and computer science and went to grad school in software engineering. I went to, was at Bethel University and then at the University of Minnesota. And I played on the Bethel tennis team. And now I live in Maple Grove with my beautiful wife, 
and my family, which are here today, and you saw a picture of Niles just turned 13, and Sawyer is 10 and a half, and Tally is eight and three quarters. So um, we, have, we have two dogs at home. We have an aging Springer Spaniel, and we also adopted a lab during the pandemic. I don't know if anyone else did that, but we, uh, we got a, a lab a few months ago, and he just turned one, and his name's Vader. We love Star Wars in our family. So, and in my free time, I love spending time with my family, and I love watching movies. I love drinking coffee, really good coffee, and love being outside as much as I can. So as Brad mentioned, I work for Samsung Electronics. Um, I work on technologies that help people build and manage connected homes. So my job is a way that God definitely provides for a family, but it is also a ministry. I try and lead and to treat people in the workplace the way that I feel that Jesus would. And having a connected home with voice assistants and cameras and locks and lights, it, it's not necessarily for everyone, but this world desperately needs leaders that follow Jesus in every area of work, business, and life. Isn't that the truth? Last month, as Brad mentioned, I had this unique and incredible opportunity to deliver part of the keynote presentation in Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show. And it is really the most influential tech show in the U.S. If you haven't heard of it, a lot of companies will make big product announcements, and there's all kinds of media and press around it. And um, yeah, at times it can be 170,000 or more people, and I think that's about nine times the size of Forest Lake, you know, all in one very small area in Las Vegas. There's very few places in the world that can actually even host an event that's that large, and Las Vegas is one of those. The keynote itself is, as you might imagine, is meticulously orchestrated. It's a production that serves as the main presentation that welcomes everybody to the show. And this year it was done in person at the Venetian and was live streamed via YouTube and through a, a VR experience. And it was, it was an honor to represent Samsung and present alongside the vice, um, vice chairman and CEO of Samsung, J.H. Han. And of course, this is a great professional opportunity for me, but it was absolutely frightening, honestly, to speak to that many people. And the real story here is one of personal growth and change, and that's what I want to tell you that story now. Ever since I was a kid, my voice has been my number one fear. I don't know how many of you have sunk back in your chair trying to not be called on in class, or you know, get those butterflies in your stomach right before you give a presentation. You know, when your, your heart starts racing and your face gets hot and your hands get cold and clammy and your mind starts playing tricks on you, I think a lot, of, a lot of us can identify with some of those feelings. And for me, it happens all the time. It's not just when I'm speaking in public. It also happens to me when I'm speaking in small groups. It happens when I'm speaking one-on-one -on -one with people, and it also happens when I'm just in my car by myself or in the shower. I'm not sure how it all started, but I do have a few early memories about it. When I was very young, maybe five years old, someone gave me one of those toy microphones. It was a 
a, a kid's toy microphone that had a little mechanical diaphragm in it, and I remember speaking into that microphone and hearing my voice for the first time amplified. And I remember how weird that that sound, and it absolutely freaked me out. And I remember just throwing the microphone aside and telling myself, never in my life will I use a microphone. I'm not sure if this is a medical diagnosis or not, but I also have a heightened sensitivity to sound and light and touch. And so what may sound a little loud to some people can bring me to my knees in agony, especially certain frequencies. And in fact, this last Christmas, my family knows this. They got me earplugs for Christmas. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's just because of my heightened sensitivity to sound or if it says something about the general noise level in our, in our house. <laughs> but because of this, I'm hyper aware of some of the smallest things, some of the smallest noises and things that, that people will make if I'm talking to them. Things like passive listening or disengagement, shifting, minor misunderstandings, body language, posture, tone of voice. You know, all of these things I pay close attention to when I'm conversing with someone, and if I notice the smallest sign of disengagement, I immediately notice, I usually stop talking and then redirect the conversation to ask a question to the other person to get them to talk. But regardless of how it all started, this fear has become a lens through which I've interpreted all kinds of situations in my life. Like I mentioned, if I'm talking with someone and they become distracted, the story that I make up about that in my head is that they don't care about me or that my voice is just another distraction to them, or that they have something better to do. If the room is noisy, if it's in parties or other social get-togethers, get I feel like my, noise, my voice adds noise to an already noisy environment. And because of this heightened sensitivity to sound that I have, I'm often bothered by the noise level, especially the noise of my own voice and how it adds to that and just feel that it adds unwanted additive noise. But throughout my life, the sound of the voice in my head, the tone in my ears, and the volume level, the space that it takes up, and the mischaracterization of how people view me has been so painful and, and awkward that I've spent, unfortunately, a lot of my life doing the easy thing for me, which has been to not talk. In my life, being silent has helped some of my listening skills, but along the way, I've never really found my voice. In my 30s, a life of silence, I started to let define me. I was feeling more and more trapped by this fear. I would avoid situations that would require me to speak. I started isolating myself more and more. And I prayed for change, and then I felt absolutely defeated when nothing seemed to change. I was starting to feel spiritually numb. Ten years ago, I started seriously confronting this fear, realizing that I really needed to make a change in my life. And so I started confronting that fear by forcing myself to speak 
in small groups, in medium-sized groups, and even some large and formal settings. I started by speaking in front of my grad school classmates, which was very tough. I tried speaking in very small work meetings of just a few people. I even practiced ahead of time telling a story to a group of friends when we would get together and awkwardly experimenting with humor, which didn't, didn't land very well. <laughs> I also practiced more presentations, very small bits, but at larger company meetings, and I took the very nerve-wracking step of watching myself on video, and yikes, that's not, not very fun to do. And then I, I started presenting publicly at some small tech conferences and even doing some panels and interviews where I had to think on my feet, unscripted with, with a microphone. But I did these things not because they were easy, but because I was intent on doing the hard work of repeatedly facing the fear with the hope that one day it would get a little bit easier for me. I had no idea what would happen, honestly. I had zero guarantees that I would be successful in any way. And um, it was incredibly awkward, to be honest. I mean, I, even for the shortest of conversations, I would script and then even memorize the things that I would say, and then I just felt very robotic, and I felt you know, absolutely vulnerable and exposed. Before many of these public speaking events that I would have, usually these were out-of-town events uh, for work, I would barely sleep the night before. I would agonize over my preparation. I would not eat. My heart would race and my stomach would turn into knots. And then when I would get done, I would go back to my hotel room and feel emotional away from my family in an unfamiliar city facing this big fear on my own and wishing I was just at home. I remember one time speaking at a conference that was on a on a show floor, and some of these conferences will have a separate area where you can go listen to certain sessions, and then another area that has vendors in their booths and things like that. And this time I was actually speaking on this floor where all the vendors were on the side of a walkway in the middle of a bunch of traffic. It was sort of a strange arrangement, and there was a vendor right behind me that was showing off the latest and greatest drones that they had, so I was speaking, and there was people all over, and there's drones flying around my head, and there was literally nobody listening to me except for one person who was the sound guy who was sitting there. And I remember thinking to myself in the middle of that, why, why am I here? I'm facing this fear and doing the thing that I most dislike and doing it in front of people that don't care. But every once in a while, even though it was hard, it would go relatively well. I could piece together my thoughts and get it out, and I would get some nice comments and feedback afterwards, and that felt great. But each time I spoke, it got a little bit easier, a little bit more familiar. I started getting used to hearing my voice amplified, and I learned what it felt like to power through when it seemed like no one was interested or listening. But along the way, I had two meaningful friend moments that, that happened. One was 
Bryant, who is one of my good friends, and he's an incredible speaker and author himself, he encouraged me, and before big events, he would send me text messages knowing how, how big of a deal it was to me and reminded me that I was created by God and I had everything that I needed inside me. And he reminded me that all I had to do was to stand and deliver. Regardless of who was there, what kind of body language I was seeing, it was just stand and deliver, stand and deliver. And these are words that I repeat to myself often before I speak. And then about three years ago, some of our friends from the Dominican Republic came to our house, and as we were praying for each other before they were leaving, and we, we didn't talk about any of my fear issues at all during the, the time, but my friend Elizabeth prayed and really felt that the Holy Spirit would be opening doors for me soon so that people could hear my voice. And I, I realized at that moment that this was not a battle of simply developing a weakness. Like, this was a spiritual battle that had significant and profound implications. But after 10 years of facing this fear, after a lot of prayer and support from my wife and best friend Mandy, and encouragement from so many friends, I can say that I have changed. I really can. And this time at this keynote presentation at CES, instead of fearing the sound of my voice, I felt excited. Instead of uncertainty, I felt steady. Instead of worrying what people in the media might think, and there was a lot of them there, I stood on both feet and felt confident in what I had to say. And this is not something that just happened overnight. It was one of a thousand steps in a journey that I'm still in the middle of, and as my good friend Matt tells me, you know, brother, the juice is in the journey. But I realized, I realized a few years ago that this fear has really been rooted in a lie to me. And I, didn't, I hadn't thought about this for most of that time, but I realized that it was rooted in a lie. And it was the lie that people don't want to hear me talk or the lie that my voice doesn't matter, the lie that no one cares about me, or the lie that I'm not unique or special. But the truth is that I was created for a purpose by God. I'm loved by Jesus and others. I am unique, and I have a voice that does matter. And it's okay for my voice to take up space, and I'm slowly but surely learning these truths. And I, I am by no means a great speaker. And there are so many ways that I can still grow and improve in the craft of speaking. But this relatively short presentation at CES really has represented something much deeper for me in this uh, journey that I've been on that um, many others just don't see from the surface. There's three things that I've really learned on this fear journey that I want to share with you, three big lessons. The first big lesson that I've learned is that God's timing is not the same as my timing. And I've been praying about this fear for decades, and if I had my way, I would snap my fingers and change overnight, but it just didn't work that way. I wanted things to happen fast, but the Lord had a journey 
for me that's taken so much longer, and I'm still not done. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that, that's a hard thing, to, a hard lesson of waiting. The second lesson that I learned that is really big for me is that this has been a journey of a thousand little steps. It's easy for me to stand here and say, look, I was here before, and then now, look, I did this thing, and look at all this like, amazing change. But the reality is that it's been a thousand steps, and growth feels really slow in the moment. Each step has been hard, or it's felt a little bit different. Jesus has been with me every step, but each step of obedience has created unexpected opportunities, really, that I'd never imagined. Matthew 6, 34 says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Living in the moment, what is that next step that the Lord has for me? And that's been my journey is, is a thousand little steps. And the third, the third lesson that I've learned, which is probably the biggest one, is that fear is a lie and Satan is a liar. Satan's great deception is distortion of the truth. It's distortion of the truth. There's a book that has impacted me in a big way, and it's the Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis in 1942. And the story, if you haven't read it, it takes on the form of a series of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape, and it's written to his nephew, Wormwood, who's kind of like a junior tempter. And Uncle Screwtape is mentoring Wormwood to secure the damnation of a British man that they just called the patient. But thinking about fear and temptation from the perspective of Satan has been thought-provoking and eye-opening for me in this journey of working through issues of fear in my life because of the lies that are rooted in it. In the book, Screwtape writes, we, Satan, want him, the patient, to be in the maximum uncertainty so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy, which is God. So he, God, wants men to be concerned with what they do, and our business, Satan's business, is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. What does Satan want for me, thinking about it that way? Satan wants me to worry what will happen when I open my mouth. Satan wants me to be concerned about what people will think of me when they hear my words. Satan wants me to feel like my voice doesn't matter, that no one cares about me and that I'm not anything particularly special or unique. But God wants the opposite of that. God wants me to trust him, not think about other people's opinions. God wants me to think about him, not to be thinking about what other people may be thinking about me. <laughs> God wants me to know that my voice matters, that he cares about me and has a special purpose for my life. Jesus says in John 8:44 that Satan is a liar 
and there is no truth in him. And then earlier in that same chapter in John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus says that if we abide in his word and we follow him, that the truth will set us free. This is about the truth. There is no truth in Satan. And if we abide in God's word, the truth will set us free. This is about the truth. And this has been one of the biggest eye-opening things for me in my fear journey is thinking about the lies that are rooted in fears, the lies, and then thinking, well, what is the truth? And that is, that is what God wants for me and for us. Like Brad said, I recently shared this story on Facebook, and I was actually very um, uncertain of whether I should do that or not. And I was absolutely overwhelmed by the number of people who reached out to me to connect with me about similar fears that they had. For some, it was the fear of rejection and that thought of, I'm not worthy. And for others, it was the fear of failure or not being perfect, the thought of, I am not good enough. And for others, it was the fear of being alone, like, I am not wanted, or the fear of being an outsider, I don't belong here. We were not created with a spirit of fear. We were created with a spirit of power and love. And in fact, in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says exactly that. It says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I pray that the Lord would give you the wisdom to know who you are and the courage to be imperfect and know that you are worthy because of Jesus and because of his love. And if you have a fear that's holding you back, I want to encourage you to face it straight on, to talk about it with people around you. Chris shared just a few moments ago about the value of this church and fellowship, and that is fellowship is fun, but it's also sometimes you have to be intentional. It's easy to get into ruts or patterns or where you sit in the sanctuary or who you know or who you don't know or someone that you maybe have seen as an acquaintance for 10 years and you've never actually had a meaningful conversation with them. It takes intentionality. But I encourage you to talk about those fears with those around you and surround you with people who remind you of the truth and celebrate those small victories that add up over time. So thank you for listening, for letting me share this story today. And thank you, Brad, for the invitation and for all the ways that you point us to the truth. So thank you. So I'd like to, I'd like to pray. Lord, thank you for being here in this room with us today. And Lord, we have, <clears throat> we have fears in our life. We have things that are like sheets that get pulled over our eyes that we get confused sometimes about where our importance comes from or what is important. And the world is sending so many messages to us that tell us we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we don't measure up, we're not 
competent enough, we're not successful enough, we don't have as many friends on Facebook as somebody else, or as many likes. <laughs> but you, you tell us a different story, and that is that we, we are your children. You created us. You created us with love. You created us in your image. You created us to love you. We know that you, you chase after us. It's that, like we, we sang earlier, the song about reckless love. Like you chase after us with a passion and fervor that we can't even fathom. And when we think that we're on an island or the when we're, we feel alone or we feel that the things that we're struggling with are actually just personal problems that we'd rather not share with people that help us have the courage to break down those walls to be vulnerable with each other, to share those stories with each other because we know that those same struggles many of us are having. Many of us are having those struggles and we need each other. You created us to be in community. You created us to be in relationship with you. And we pray that we could have the courage to, to lean into your grace, the courage to, to open up our eyes and see how much you love us, how much restorative power that you have in our lives and we just need to open our hearts to that. We thank you for what you have done in our lives. We thank you for all that you will do in our lives and we go excited thinking about that future of what you will do in our lives but knowing that the next step is the step when we just walk out out the door today. I just pray that we have courage to take that next step of faith with you, just the next one. Not, not the next thousand steps in one leap, but the next one step to lean into your, your grace and your love. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.